the movie is pure escapism, no big social message. But these days, with the way the world is, there is a lot to escape from. So it's a good bet that many Americans this spring will be going to that galaxy long ago and far, far away. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. At the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. The sequel to Star Wars is here. It's called The Empire Strikes Back. Are you excited about seeing the new Star Wars movie? Yeah, I like the first one a lot, and I think the second one will be just as good. I've been waiting all year, and I'm going to be going again. I'll go see it. My kids will go see it, and I'll go with them, and I'll probably sneak in again on my own. Oh, I thought it was pretty good. I didn't like the ending. It could have been a better ending. Do you think this is going to be as big as Star Wars? Bigger! No, bigger! Bigger. Yeah. bigger! And yet a lot of the critics are panning it. Well, what do they know? Hello there. Welcome to episode 15 of Star Wars at the Movies. I'm Stephen Danley, and with the year 2020 mercifully coming to an end, it feels right to focus on something celebratory, namely the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. The beloved sequel to Star Wars and its pure escapism once again topped the box office this year when it graced the screens of drive-ins and briefly operating cinemas 40 summers on from its original run. And with the way the world is now, there has certainly been a lot to escape from, though we can't exactly escape in the ways we've always been used to, at least not yet. But in the spirit of looking forward to things, this vintage trailer arrived in the fall of 1979, promising something big, new, and sprawling. And now, preview time. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. The continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. Galactic Odyssey against oppression. A big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy, next summer. Lucasfilm's original director of fan relations, Craig Miller, ran that freshly approved trailer twice back-to-back to an overexcited crowd at San Diego Comic-Con on August 4th, 1979. It would make its way to theaters 11 days later on August 15th, and was the first glimpse at any live-action footage from Empire. Here's the trailer's architect, the film's editor, Paul Hirsch, and how it came to be. Gary Kurtz came to me and he said, we're going to need a trailer. 
I said, well, there's no film. How can I cut a trailer where there's no film? You know, he says, well, keep it in mind, you know. So uh, on one of these afternoons where I had nothing to do, I started thinking about a trailer and I had worked in trailers early in my career. So I wrote a little script and uh, I cut this trailer together using the footage that I had at the time, which was sort of slim pickings, but whatever I had, I, I was able to use them. I used the music from the first film and put in some sound effects and I uh, needed a, an actor to narrate, uh, to read the script that I had written. So Mark, because he was expecting his first child, was walking around the studio with a sign hanging around his neck. It was like a cardboard on a piece of string that said, don't ask. He was tired of people saying, so when's the baby coming? When's the baby coming? You know? So, uh, he just, so I thought, well, I just, I guess I should leave him alone, you know? Um, and uh, so I went to Harrison. I said, Harrison, I, I need some help. And he said, what, what is it? I said, well, I, I've done this trailer and uh, I need somebody to narrate it. And he said, so you want an American voice? Huh? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He says, so your, your options are kind of limited, huh? I said, yeah. So he said, how much are they paying you to do this? I said, they're not paying me anything. This is just, you know, this is my salary in the film. He said, that's outrageous. I said, well, look, in any event, can you can you help me out? So he said, okay, he agreed to do it. So then we went into a studio for about half an hour and he knocked it off. And I had him play it like a like a uh, newsboy announcing an extra edition, sort of a high-pitched, excited, uh, uh, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess from Darth Vader, but their story didn't end there. You know, and it was sort of this cheesy kind of, trailerish you know um it's meant to hark back to the era that inspired star wars the, the serials from the 30s you know that was mm -hmm. that was my idea so so anyway i had it mixed together and i sent it off to california and i got a phone call from somebody who worked for george and they said george loved the trailer i said great and they said and we love the narrator um who is it i said harrison they said who I said, Harrison, Harrison Ford, one of the stars of our movie, you know, and they said, oh, oh. So I went and I found Harrison. I said, Harrison, we're a hit, you know. He says, great. He says, my father used to do this for a living and they pay really well for this kind of stuff. He says, I'm, I'm going to ask them for uh, 10 grand and I'm going to split it with you. So just at that time, Gary Kurtz came walking up and he said, uh, Harrison, I wonder if I could talk to you. And uh, Harrison said, sure, Gary, and he put his arm around his shoulder and he walked away and gave me a wink, you know, and he came back and he said, I only had the nerve to ask for five grand. About a week, about a week later, I got a check for $2,500, which was a lot of money in those days. <laughs> That's some Han Solo-esque wheeling and dealing there from Ford. So this interview was one of many in the epic Empire 40 livestream put on by Dave Tree earlier this year. If you missed it, it's still available on the Farthest From Facebook page, and I'll include a link in the show notes. It's just an incredible feat and the perfect way to get lost in behind the scenes and nostalgic Empire Strikes Back content. But anyway, back to the trailer. Harrison Ford's uncharacteristically enthusiastic narration and John Williams' familiar cues go a long way in diverting attention from the fact that there are essentially no visual effects present, barring a pair of bookending hero shots from the asteroid field sequence that ILM had finished. Audiences had absolutely no idea what was in store for them. Though sequels have traditionally been characterized for their forgettability, Empire was and still is anything but forgettable. It was more than the original, but not simply more of the same. As Gene Siskel put it back in 1980, May 21st, we get the real McCoy, and it's something rare, a sequel that works. The movie's limited initial release on May 21st, 1980 comprised of 127 bookings, an expansion compared to the 32 theaters that debuted the original Star Wars in 1977, but a modest one given its role as the follow-up to the biggest smash hit of all time. One of those 70mm 6-track Dolby exclusive engagements would go on to outlast all the rest. Time to head to the Pacific Northwest's Emerald City. It is difficult to be conservative about Seattle's future because we have so much going for us. Everything about Seattle, its people, its scenery, its history, its spirit have been notable. This is Seattle, 
picture of a young city. The domed and luxurious United Artist 150 opened in Seattle's Denny Triangle neighborhood in October of 1969 as part of a twin complex along with the UA-70, and was no slouch when it came to its run of the original Star Wars at 60 weeks. The Empire struck back at the UA-150 with an additional week tacked on, setting the record for the sequel's longest engagement in the U.S. at 61 weeks. The Seattle Times even ran an ad from Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox in May of 1981 congratulating the theater on its one-year mark, with R2 and 3PO astride a flying birthday cake. The venue sadly met its ultimate demise and destruction in 2002, but its title as Emperor of Empire will always stand. This episode's guest and fellow podcaster Hal Bryan was one of the many moviegoers that gazed up at the UA-150's massive curved screen during Empire's historic reign. With a lifelong passion for aviation, it would seem natural for Star Wars to draw his interest at a young age. Alright, on to the feature presentation. And now for our feature presentation. Well, I was born uh, back in the uh, summer of 1968, and it was in uh, San Mateo County Hospital. Uh, I lived in, my family and I lived in Burlingame, California at the time. Uh, not all that far from, uh, you know, certainly what is now Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, where some of the early ILM stuff was happening, although, <laughs> of course, I, I had no idea at the time. Um, so I lived there until I was eight years old, which was 1976. So in, in the California era there, um, we weren't a family that, uh, that went to a lot of movies. Um, we're very much an aviation family. Both my parents worked for United Airlines. Um, aviation is something I've been around my whole life, something I'm still very involved in personally and professionally. But, uh, it seemed to be like when we would go to movies, uh, in in that pre-Star Wars era, 76 and earlier, it tended to be um, because some big classic aviation movie maybe had been had come out or had been re-released or something like that. So I remember seeing Tora, Tora, Tora in the theater, but not in 1970 when it was brand new. It would have been a few years later because I was only two years old. So anyway, so it was things like that. So movies weren't, we didn't just sort of say, let's go do something fun. Let's go to a movie. Okay, well, it's playing. It was more like, you know, oh, this uh, this particular movie will be showing and it has airplanes in it. So we're going. Um, in uh, fall of 76, we moved to the state of Washington where I lived um, uh, for about another, the next 30 years or so of my life, um, kind of near Seattle. And uh, um Lived on a little private airstrip out there, so it was pretty uh, for an airplane geek. Pretty cool growing up with a uh, with a runway in the backyard. Um, at the time, I had two older brothers. One of them uh, passed away several months ago, very unexpectedly. I'm sorry to say. So sorry. Um, <clears throat> and but you know, my my uh, relationship with my brothers um, has always really been heavily grounded in common interests. And there's, you know, you could draw this almost infinite number of sort of Venn diagrams. Um, you know, this older brother, I, and I'm the baby of the family, you know, this older brother's into this, and so I'm into a part of that. That older brother was into the other thing, and I'm into part of that. And, you know, there was crossover among the three of us, but I tended to be sort of the common denominator uh, in, in terms of anything we were interested in. But my my oldest brother, uh, my, the late brother Christian, was uh, um, very much into science fiction, although, you know, as we would... Uh, discussed many, many times over the years. Um, he was really only into bad science fiction. So, you know, you talk about bad sci-fi movies, uh, for him, like most of us talk about something like plan nine from outer space being just about the worst science fiction movie ever made, or maybe even the worst movie ever made. And he's to him, that's, that's too good to fit or it was too good to sort of fit into his category. He was into the just the the horrible low budget stuff, and the 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 worse it was, the more he loved it. 
but uh, anyway, living there in in uh, Washington State, I moved as I said in in uh, fall of '76. So by you know summer of '77, I was uh, let's see, it would have been in the third grade, and um, certainly had uh, had made some great new friends and everything after a a big you know a big move from state to state. But uh, I remember uh, very very clearly seeing you know that early teaser for star wars that uh, you know sometime probably must have been late spring um seeing that trailer and i remember you know telling my my brother my oldest brother chris that uh, this looked like something we were going to both really like because it's science fiction and it looks like there's spaceships and oh my gosh and he thought it looked pretty cool but uh he wasn't uh, he wasn't super excited about it so how did your first viewing of the movie come about and where did you see it I, I wish I could pin down the exact date. I mean, my memory tells me that it was somehow magically right away opening day. And I, I if it if it wasn't opening day, I know it was very very close. So it would have. Uh, my birthday is in May, uh, late May, and so it's you know, it, it, which I I think George Lucas is somewhere in there if I remember right. So there was there was always sort of that crossover that you know for for years Star Wars movies came out around my birthday, which I I took very personally, but. Uh, Anyway, I know my mom knew that I that I was really really desperate to see the movie, and uh, so I know she worked really hard to get tickets, and we ended up. and And the reason that I think that it's at least possible we were there opening day, if not a couple of days after, is that we went to a theater we wouldn't normally have gone to. Okay. So it would make sense that she was calling around trying to get tickets because you know this is years before the internet or anything like that, and there was no concept of uh, you know. If you wanted tickets, you drove to the theater and bought them, or you, you know, you called them on the phone. So we went to uh, a theater at a place called Tacoma Mall. So Tacoma is kind of the other big city there, south of Seattle. And uh, uh, the theater is no longer there; it's just part of the mall parking lot now, where it stands. But uh, we still get back that way uh, usually over Christmas. And so I, every time I drive by, I I look at the spot at least where we saw it. And I, I couldn't tell you what time of day it was. I want to say it was it was probably a you know like a mid midday or you know afternoon showing because that was a little bit of a drive from our our house where we were living with traffic and everything. It could be as much as an hour away, so we wouldn't have gone to some some late night show or something like that. But you know, what do you say about that about that first viewing? How do you describe it? Um, I you know I sat down my. Eyes were locked wide open. I would have almost certainly had a small box of hot tamales with me to uh, to mix with the popcorn. And uh, uh, and if you you know if you haven't tried it, I'm telling you, everybody, it's good stuff. Um, and it just uh, the whole thing just just washed over me. I mean, you got to the I was just entranced by all of it. My eyes open, my mouth hanging open. I don't really remember breathing or blinking or anything. Um, you know, what I do remember is walking out of the theater and saying, how do I spend more time there? You know? yeah, absolutely. So did you get to see it more than one time that summer? I would have seen it, um, at least one more time. And I think twice because, uh, it's some, uh, dear, dear friends and, and it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, the kinds of friendships where they're your other family, their, their parents are my other parents and that kind of thing. We are still extremely close, you know, to this day some 40 plus years later, um, uh, and it was uh, Eric and Mike Flint and uh, uh, their parents, Jim and Donna. And I know I went uh, at least once with them as uh, as kind of tagging along with their family, if not a if not another time. And then uh, later, uh, Mike of, of the two sons, he and I would go on to see Return of the Jedi uh, an embarrassing number of times. So we'll we'll come back come to that, I guess, in a minute. <laughs> yeah. So I know I saw it at least a couple more times. And then in between times, I had things like the. Uh, the story of Star Wars record, long play, the long playing album. And so, uh, that I think the whole audio of that is, uh, is out there in a few different places. I think there's maybe a version of it on YouTube. But anyway, I, I would, you know, I'd had my record player and put headphones on and just listen to that over and over and over until I just about wore the record out. Um, over the next, uh, year or so, you know, of course that, that Christmas was the, the 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 great you know lessons learned in merchandising. Kenner had the license and was ready to produce figures, but uh, you know didn't have them out in time. So there were the early bird certificates. I remember asking for one of those, but I, I didn't get it that year for Christmas. But then the following uh, 
following summer, following birthday and stuff, you know, those, the next several years of holidays were just defined by all the Star Wars crap on my, uh, on my wish list. But with that record album and then the, you know, the following summer, a uh, couple of figures and the, uh, the Star Wars movie viewers, if you've ever seen those. Yeah, they're they're definitely some of my favorite vintage items, and you really come to appreciate them when you realize that was probably the, the one true glimpse of the movie itself in those times between the theatrical releases, unless you had a Super 8 projector and got the Ken Films Digest versions. Right. And that's, it's so, it's, you know, I was there, I'm the, I'm the last generation that remembers, you know, sort of right before when, you know, hey, this movie came out, I like it, okay, I can't wait to own it and watch it on my phone and my watch and my TV and, you know, computer and tablet and everything else. And just back then, it was just starving for whatever glimpse of those, that little uh, movie viewer. I think I had, I, I can't remember for sure how many total cartridges there were. If I remember right, I had three and I think I still have, actually do still have it in the box. And you you could crank forward and backward through these uh, film scenes and go as fast or slow as you want. And it was always a challenge. It's like, okay, I want to crank it exactly right so it looks just like it did in the movie. Now I want to make it go really fast. Now I want to go frame by frame and watch the laser bolt hit and then blow up and the stormtrooper kind of flinch and stuff like that. Yeah, that meant, uh, boy, that meant so much to me is that, you know, just close one eye and peek in there and get the light just right and for just just you know a few seconds here and there i could be uh you know i could be back in that uh, in that world and i um you know i was uh, i was an avid collector of lots of star wars stuff and i was pretty lucky too at the time my mother was was fearless um while i was still a pretty shy kid so you know when we go places and they had uh uh, what's it's like the tops trading cards, you know, where you get the eight the trading cards and a sticker and a, and a piece of antique gum. Um, she would be the one who would ask, uh, you know, what are you going to do with that display when you're done with it? Can I have it for my son? And so, so I ended up with a lot of store displays and things and sold some of that over the years. I still have, still have a few things here and there, but that was always fun too. Just, and it, it was just, if I had had access to the movies, I don't know if I would have been as much of a collector or not. Um, my very first Star Wars figure, though, came around. Um, it, you know, it would have been spring, uh, spring or so of '78, just you know when things were out there. And I was at school. I would have been, let's say, I guess in fourth grade at this point, maybe or end, end of my third grade year. Anyway, third or fourth grade. Math and stuff is hard. The older you get. Um, and I remember I was walking around the playground, and I looked down, and there was a Star Wars figure, a Death Squad commander. And, you know, at first, oh, cool, Star Wars figure. It's like treasure, you know, pick it up. And it was, I think it was right at the end of the day because, um, and I was just kind of wandering around waiting for my mom to come to uh, pick me up. So there weren't really any other kids around or many other kids around. Everybody was going home. And, uh, so I picked it up, um, you know, for a fraction of a second, I'm super excited. And then, um, then my mom pulled in. And then I went over and told her, said, you know, hey, I just found this. She goes, oh, is that a Star Wars figure like you've been wanting? I said, yeah, it's really cool, but I got to go take it to the Lost and Found because it's it's not mine. I've got to go, you know, turn it in. And and so I went in and, you know, dropped it off so that some other kid hopefully got it back. Well, I never, ever found out whose it was, and that would really be interesting to, to know now. Um, so mom was proud of me. I did the right thing with no prompting. I didn't just keep it. Like I, you know, briefly wanted to in my flirtation with the dark side. But, um, so we drove from, uh, from there, from Westwood Elementary School in Enumclaw, Washington, of all places. We drove to a, a weird little store called, uh, Jayhawks. And that was also in downtown Enumclaw. And it was, uh, we used to joke it was a, it was a massive chain store because there were two of them. There was one in Enumclaw, one in a place called Yelm. And, uh, picture kind of a, Kmart kind of place, but a little bit more tired and, you know, a little bit more rundown and a lot more taxidermy. Like one wall is just nothing but, nothing but taxidermy, both sort of <laughs> both regular and novelty taxidermy, which is a weird thing to get used to as a kid. But, you know, it was a, I mean, it was just a, a charming sort of small town alternative to, you know, to the Kmarts of the world. And, and so we went in there and, and found their, uh, you know, there's Star Wars toy section and she bought me the Death Squad Commander. So this would have been, what is that? I think that's an original 12 back, right? And uh, so I bought that for me. Of course, tore it open as fast as I could, and, you know, played Star Wars guy on the way back home. And uh, that really, uh, really, really opened the floodgates <laughs> in terms of figures. I probably bought my most recent Star Wars figure, I don't know, six weeks ago, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so yeah. it doesn't seem to stop. 
Yeah, especially when your mom is an advocate. That's that's how I was too. My mom was a, a total Star Wars advocate for me growing up, and when it's encouraged, it can get out of control fast. <laughs> yeah, she was uh, she was terrific about that, and and she just she saw how how happy it made me. So you know, then uh, must have been well. So I remember in uh, so May of seventy eight, so my tenth uh, birthday. Um, then my buddy Tom Geyer and I had a joint birthday party. Our birthdays in a few days within a few days of each other. And, um, uh, my mom got us, uh, kind of some matching gifts. It was the, uh, inflatable lightsabers, the yellow. So the flashlight with the big yellow inflatable tube out of it at the end of it. Um, and then, uh, had, uh, had these matching shirts made just with iron ons and stuff. And the, uh, that first t-shirt that I got, I think, you know, you know, kind of plays into the story a little bit later too. So leading up to the empire strikes back, what was your anticipation level? How aware were you that a, a sequel was coming? You know, we would just eat up. Uh, my my friends that were into Star Wars mainly it was that Eric and and Mike. Uh, um, we would just eat up everything we could. Now we were lucky because Eric and Mike's uh, mom owned. Uh, it may have come along a little bit later, but somewhere in that time frame, um, she owned a small bookstore with a great uh, magazine section, you know, newsstand kind of thing. And she was a big Star uh, science fiction fan. Um, a little bit less Star Wars, more Star Trek, but she was always uh, always up to date on anything that was going on. And and they had a, you know, subscription to Starlog, and they had Starlog magazine in the stores. And so anything, any glimpse of any news about a sequel, you know, she would tip us off, and we'd grab the magazines and, and just, you know, just, tear into it and you'd see these snow scenes and you know Han Solo isn't wearing a vest anymore and just what in the world is going to happen what's going on what is this um and of course all through leading up to this and I don't want to backtrack too much around that uh, 78 79 time frame uh we were building a hangar in the backyard for store the airplane and so for a good part of one summer there was just a big sort of open dirt area that was you know uh, it seemed like it was two or three feet deep. It probably wasn't that deep, but just a big square, you know, for the footprint, for the foundation to be to go and all that kind of stuff for this hangar. And so I would have my buddy Eric and I would go out there with my land speeder and, you know, Luke and Obi-Wan and R2 and 3PO figures and stuff. And so when you would set the land speeder on this little, on the main ground above this hole that had been dug, this giant hole had been dug, it was all just natural dirt. Then it, it felt a lot like my, look, looking down at the Moss Eisley and stuff like that. So we'd, you know, we'd play around with that kind of stuff. I got my Death Star playset. I got my Sears Cantina playset with my blue snaggle tooth in that time frame. Anyway, so I don't mean to digress too far, but leading up to uh, leading up to Empire, you know, there was uh, I I couldn't stand it. I just absolutely couldn't stand it. You know, the trailer would come on TV, and and that's another another thing that's even hard to fathom now that uh, you know a new trailer is released for something and you're super excited about it. At that point, you either saw it in the theater before another movie, or you caught it on TV. And and uh, like I freak out when I remember that YouTube didn't exist until I was thirty eight years old, which is really really bizarre. It's like I, like even now, you know, you could you could hypnotize me and convince me pretty easily that boy, I I watched the Empire Strikes Back trailer on YouTube a hundred times there in nineteen seventy nine and early nineteen eighty, and you know, obviously that would be impossible. But it's it's so hard to imagine life before that. But there it was. So anyway, mom. Uh, Bless her heart, got uh, as uh, an advanced birthday present. She, she told me in advance this was coming, but uh, she got us uh, tickets for May 21st, 1980. So true opening, uh, general release opening day uh, in downtown Seattle this time. And uh, a big, wonderful theater called the UA 150. And uh, I, th I think you may have seen uh, some of the sort of news and stuff around that screening because empire uh, ran there longer than i believe it did any other theater in the country it ran for 61 62 weeks something like that nonstop. which you know that's unheard of now you know well even outside of pandemic now nothing makes sense right now now but you know these days a movie has a great big opening weekend maybe it's around for another week or two three and then then you hem and haw and wait you know, three to five months and buy it at home or stream it. And and then you're, you're all set. And back then for it to just keep playing and playing and playing. But we were at the, the 9am show. 
um, got another, uh, got a commemorative t-shirt there and I had a ton of other Star Wars t-shirts in the interim and stuff, but got this commemorative t-shirt where the local radio station was just giving them away and they were, they sort of took the Star Wars, you know, Star Wars frames, uh, Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back logo and kind of took out the Empire Strikes Back and just put in their own logo and they'd be sued out of existence for doing that now. But back then they must just have thought it was cool. So we got these, I was there, you know, I was there t-shirts. So, so 9am, we got there at about 6am lined up years before reserve seating. And it's this, you know, gigantic theater. I don't remember how many it seats, but if it's something like a thousand, 1100 to something like that, it's a good size theater, big curved screen. And we were in all the way in the front row, almost all the way to the left-hand side. So kind of a terrible, a terrible place, but I just didn't. I didn't care at all. You know, again, as soon as it started, just, I didn't blink or breathe. I just stared and, uh, uh, went back to school the next day. This was a, would have been a school day. So yeah, so she had just, you know, taken me out of school for the day. And so I just, you know, went home and just kind of quivered for the day. You know, what's just happened? Darth Vader was lying, right? That can't be. And is Han Solo dead? What's going on? And I, you know, went to school the next day and nobody had seen it. So if it, yeah, Wednesday, that would make sense because then I'm back on Thursday and Friday and, and it was, you know, would have been so then probably the following week before any of my friends had seen it. And then we could, could finally, you know, <laughs> we got to talk this out. We got to figure out what's going on and to just, you just wait and wonder. And it's, it's funny too. We obviously, we didn't have any kind there was no such thing as an online community or presence of any kind. So you waited for like the next issue of Starlog or, um, you know, the Bantha Tracks, Star Wars Club newsletter and things like this to come around. But, but like these original, like the, the letters you'd see at, uh, in Starlog magazine and stuff, people freaking out, like, you know, like, ah, what this movie was so depressing, you know, you've, you've ruined the, these films for me forever. And now of course we look back and it's, you know, it's, it's hard to argue that it's not the, the, the best of the whole franchise. Yeah, it's so true when you look back at some of the initial fan reactions to Empire and how <laughs> strikingly similar the tone is to complaints you continue to see with new Star Wars today. And, and it's just everybody has a louder mouthpiece now, and there's it's easier to uh, easier to get your opinions out there, which overall I think is a good thing. But it is it is something sort of worth you know worth remembering too, because that um, you know you didn't you saw a movie and you talked about it with your friends and you know, that was usually the extent of sort of the, the input it had, you know, you didn't have these raging debates with strangers from all over the planet <laughs> about, was it good? Was it not good? What am I supposed to think? Right. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious if you had any other memories about the UA 150, is there anything that really sticks out in your mind about the venue? Really, it was just the size of it. And it was, uh, you know, it, it closed up several years ago and was finally torn down uh, not that long ago. But it was, what I remember more than anything was just the size. You sort of pat it. And especially, you know, it was, I was a, wasn't a little, little kid. I was 12 years old, but I was so young kid. Um, just sort of working your way through the line and you're in the lobby and the lobby seems huge. And you step into the theater and it's got that, you almost get a little bit of vertigo. The room is so big. And, you know, the walkways slope down on either side, giant curved screen, but it's covered with curtains. And so it's a huge deal when the lights dim and then the curtains, you know, motorized curtains open up and it seems like that takes forever. And the screen just is wider and wider and wider. Um, but it just, it, as soon as you step into the, the room, you're, you're looking across and, you know, the other side almost seems faint because it's so far away. And it almost feels like, well, this, this room is so big, it kind of has its own almost has its own atmosphere. And then of course, you know, it's full of people and you get that instant sense that no matter matter ages or where they're from or what they like, what they believe, what they're into, there's just this buzz that every single person in that room, um, you know, is there in a the theater at nine o'clock in the morning because we really, really want to just see this movie and, and hopefully just love it to death. Do you remember the general reaction to the movie and the Vader moment? Just, uh, like I said, I, I almost want to look up the capacity of the of that theater. But call, if, if, say if it was a thousand people, it was just it was a thousand people doing the quietest gasp all at the same time, just this, <gasps> and then just <laughs> just like all the airs out of the room. And it, it's 
it seems, I don't know, it seems all, it seems cliche or seems sort of naive now because when you consider, I don't know, it's just, it's impossible to put yourself back in that mindset and forget everything that we know now. But that should have been, you know, at least a conceivable outcome. You see the first film and then it's, you know, well, your, your dad's dead. You know, here's a scary bad guy. Somebody in the world somewhere must have said, well, what if Darth Vader was his dad? I mean, somebody had, had thought about it, considered it. But I don't think they were in that theater because <laughs> we were just, you're just shocked, just absolutely shocked and freaked out. And, you know, at the time it, it felt like I, I've got to just second guess everything I've ever believed. My whole life could be a lie. I have no idea how to cope with this because this is just, this is just insane. Okay, so Empire is come and gone. Everyone is freaking out. How did you cope for the next few years before Return of the Jedi came out? You know, for the most part, for the first, uh, you know, first a year and a half, if it was a three-year gap, first year, year and a half or so, it was definitely more toys, the Hoth playset and Snowspeeder for the three and three-quarter inch figures and all that good stuff. Um, the uh, soundtrack album, you know, again, and and then just, you know, tearing into magazines and stuff whenever, wherever I could. Um so, you know, Jedi came out uh, basically around my 15th birthday. And so it was just at a point where I, I wasn't, uh, I, you know, wasn't as certainly was much into the action figures at that point. I, I figure I took, oh, from about 1980, mid-81, maybe very early 82, until about uh, 88 or so. I took that period of my life off from action figures. But otherwise, before and since, <laughs> you know, still a collector. So it was a little bit less about the figures, but I was every bit as excited about the movie. And uh, again, you just you you find your snippets wherever you can, and read every magazine that comes out, and you know buy magazines off the the newsstands when you see them, and and just hope and wait and hope and wait. And so for uh, for Jedi, it was my buddy uh, my buddy Mike, my you know bonus second family, um, that uh, he and I went to see it and it was pretty cool. Cause so I was, I had just turned 15, but he was a couple of years older, a few years older, so he could drive. So that, uh, um, that was a crazy sign of independence for us. If I remember right, we had to go like line up and get these tickets in person, but I knew we had tickets. It seems like at least a couple of months in advance, you know, time, time seems funny back then. It felt like 20 years of waiting, but we had tickets a long time in advance and, uh, we, we had gotten those tickets for, I think the big opening day venue in Seattle at that point was strange. It wasn't the UA again, although it, it may have been there, but, uh, for us, the, the big preview showings or earliest showings were at the a theater called the Egyptian, still a good size sort of ornate theater memory. My memory is that it was considerably smaller than the UA, but had more of that, you know, sort of golden age of cinema art deco lobby and lots of ornate fixtures and things. And, uh, whatever it was, whether we had to go line up for tickets or it may have just been that we had to call by phone, but it was by the time we were able to get tickets, we wanted to see it at midnight, you know, which truly would have been the first showing of that day. And we just missed midnight showings, but we had our tickets for three in the morning. And so here we go. Um, we got in his, uh, his battered green four door Chevy Nova, which I, a car that I dearly loved, but it was the least muscly Nova ever built. And, uh, you know, loaded the car with, with snacks and I, you know, Probably some, probably some cherry Coke. If I think that is, that had existed then to help me, uh, you know, help me stay up. And we got to the theater probably uh, between 11 and midnight and lined up, you know, again, even though we had tickets and, uh, you know, watched Jedi for the first time and then finished it, you know, probably shortly before six in the morning. So I basically, so I went home and then I went to school as normal after having been up basically all night, went to high school and, um, so unlike empire where I was just in a daze at home, now I'm, I'm at, in high school and I'm still wandering around in a daze. Um, you know, even though it, it has this finality to it, it wasn't a cliffhanger. It's still everything about it. So, okay, wait, he really was okay. Wait. And Luke and Leia brother. Oh my, you know, this is just in, it's just incredible, but Vader was good at the end. So that's, that's incredible. And I remember wandering around until I saw my buddy Craig Williams and Craig and his brother, Mark. Uh, also very, very dear friends and who I'm still quite close to today. Um, both of those guys were buddies and Craig had seen it, I think at the midnight show 
somehow or other he'd gotten in ahead of uh, ahead of us. And I just I'll never forget walking down the hallway in high school and I've got that look on my face and I spot Craig. And it must be, you know, a hundred people between us. I'd spot them all the way down there. And we just start walking toward each other. It just so like they would stop and just stare at each other with our mouths hanging open. And then he goes, You you saw it, right? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, and then we gotta we gotta go sit and talk about this. And so anyway, um, Craig and his brother Mark and I saw Jedi a few times more that summer. Uh Mike and I, who we we saw it that that three o'clock and three AM show, we saw it. I think the final total was 17 times. Wow. Yeah. I guess the mobility and the independence of that age, that's really the benefit there. <laughs> that was the, that was the key. Um, let me just bounce back super quickly. Something a bit earlier. It was one of the things we talked about, you know, before star Wars didn't really go to movies for the sake of going to a movie, but after star Wars, um, in addition to just loving the franchise itself, it just completely ignited my love for movies. So um, especially, you know, once either I had friends who could drive or once I could drive, I was going to movies all the time. But the the one little one that stands out was uh, seeing uh, Corvette Summer at a th- theater called the Chalet Theater. It was in downtown Enumclaw where I went to high school. Um, didn't always show first run movies, but it was just a cool older small town theater. And, uh, and my buddy uh, Eric we played, you know, played lots of Star Wars stuff together. He said, you know, hey, we're going to see this. It's got, uh, you know, it's got Luke Skywalker in it. You know, do you want to go see it? And I remember getting really confused for a second because, well, it, you know, it didn't have spaceships or airplanes in it. So why are we going? But it sounds like fun. And so we just went to a movie for the sake of going to a movie. And so Corvette Summer was the first thing I saw that, you know, I wasn't interested in it any, you know, for any reason other than it looks like it might be kind of fun. So from, from then on, it's, uh, you know, movies, I, I collect movies very avidly, love the experience of going to movies, watching movies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It had a similar effect on me though. I first saw them on VHS at home. It really did open my eyes to everything movie wise. Um, so, so you saw Jedi 17 times, Yes. Uh, <laughs> was part of that influenced by the idea that this was going to be it, that this was it for star Wars. In a way, but also, um, you know, and Lucas has has backtracked on this a couple of times, but uh, there was, whether it was coming from him or whether it was just a rumor, but it was, it was widely understood back then that there were going to be nine films eventually. You know, once Empire came out and we realized, okay, there's, you know, there's a sequel and stuff like that, there's, that there were going to be nine movies. And uh, I, I would... <laughs> crack myself up because or i crack myself up now because i would do the math and say you know wow by the time episode nine comes out i'm going to be let's see every three years and blah 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 i'm going to be 36 years old and uh in actuality i think i was you know 51 when episode nine truly came out um but uh so anyway there was just that that sense that i mean yeah this this was a conclusion but you know that was 83 and i was already starting starting to count down to 86 because that's when the next episode was would probably come out and then the closer we got and there was just you know just nothing and nothing and nothing and nothing for so long it was uh it was pretty frustrating and of course through that time you know we finally able to uh to get a copy of it and watch it at home um, one of the other great contributions that my buddies Eric, Eric and Mike made to my fandom was that they had an uncle, uh, or kind of an honorary uncle, a good friend of their uh, of their family who was in the Navy, and they would show movies on the ships on closed circuit TV. And he had a VCR, and this the the family uh, that I was friends with had the first VCR I'd ever seen, so he could record movies and send them to them. So we were actually able to watch uh 100% bootleg copy of Star Wars on VHS before the official VHS release but it would have still been I think well after Empire that must have been a pretty hot commodity that was yeah. pretty amazing and I honestly I mean they had a VCR 3 or 4 years before we did and it was there was a good year or two when they were the only people I'd ever even heard of who had such a thing they were serious early adopters so that was incredible so you mentioned that you got uh, that free T-shirt for the Empire opening day from the radio station, and and I've seen you share photos of this amazing quilt made entirely of Star Wars shirts that's sort of related to that. What what's the story on that? That was uh, that was something. So you know, over the years, you know, allegedly grew up a little bit, but uh, hung on to just about all of my uh, 
all of my Star Wars stuff, um, and uh, in, including the T-shirts, which frankly I thought had been, I didn't think that I still had. But uh, I got uh, uh, married. My wife Muffy and I got married uh, in '99 uh, when I was 31, and uh, if, you know, of course, obviously been together ever since. And it was about. Maybe four years ago or so that uh, she'd been, you know, digging around some boxes in the in the basement. We uh, had moved quite a few times since then. I, my career path, uh, not that anybody will care, was was a weird one. It was uh, several years as a police officer, then about fifteen years as a software engineer at Microsoft, and then uh, from there to here to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where I'm now the uh, senior editor for an aviation publication and the whole uh, sort of content arm of an aviation organization. Anyway, so it was about that four or five years ago. She'd been digging through some boxes and she found all my Star Wars shirts in like weirdly good condition. And, you know, these are the things from the 70s that was really just an iron-on. They, they weren't homemade except for the one that my mom had customized for that 10th birthday. But there was the the 10th birthday one that had my name on it and fuzzy letters. And then, because it was the 70s, they had to be fuzzy letters. Then the uh, I Was There t-shirt for Empire. And then just sort of your typical, you know, Darth Vader, R2-D2, C-3PO kinds of, uh, kinds of shirts. And so she made this quilt uh, out of it. And it just, it just blew my mind. Um, you know, it, and she didn't, uh, she hadn't told me about it. Uh, didn't really ask me anything about it about halfway through. And she was, she was doing a good job sort of keeping it secret, but halfway through, she did say that she was just working on something, uh, something for me and just asked me to ask me to trust her. And it's, it's funny because I, if we talked about it beforehand, if I'd known I'd still had these shirts and then we talked about it and she said she wanted to cut them up, I would have felt a little weird, you know? And so I'm, I'm glad she didn't say anything, um, or really tell me she just asked me to trust her, which of course I, I didn't do. And so I've got this wonderful, you know, this wonderful quilt. It's two sided. It's, um, just, uh, it's got nine different shirts on it, both uh, front and back. And it's, you know, framed with uh, sort of like, uh, film sprockets. It got that kind of look to it. So it's got very much got this movie look to it and it's, you know, all the shirts are all different colors and, and many of them still have a little bit of that sort of gaudy seventies look to them. And to God forbid there's ever a, a fire in my house because I'm going to make sure that my wife is out. I will grab the cats and the quilt at the same time. Those are the, those are the things we're going to save first, man. That's great. So how has star Wars maintained an influence on your life and what part have those original experiences going to the movies played in that? Wow. Uh, well, clearly it's something that's just has stayed with me and, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not an obsessive, uh, collector. There isn't any one sort of thing I collect. There's some figures that I like and, you know, anything that's got X-Wing Luke on it, I still like grabbing that. But, um, so it influences me sort of on that, that material side, but, uh, but really it's, um, it, it's something that has, uh, been an outlet for me. It's something that, uh, Taught me what it uh, taught me what it was like to just uh, to embrace fandom for something and just really sort of get into it. It was also, you know, I mentioned at the start of the episode that it was something I thought my oldest brother and I would kind of kind of share, and it really wasn't his thing because it was all too good, except for the holiday special. I made him watch that entire thing. <laughs> that was more his style. That was more his speed because it was just so terrible. Um, but, uh, but seriously, it was in my, in my family, in terms of our interests, uh, you know, being the youngest, you know, Star Wars as a little kid, that was the first interest and focus and thing that was strictly mine. And, uh, you know, everything else was, well, I like this because my older brother likes that. And we had that in common and that's cool. And I love that, but this is the thing that's, uh, this is the thing that's mine. And it's, I've always felt a, you know, very sort of personal connection and almost an ownership, uh, ownership to it. Uh, over the years. And of course, you know, now that with the advent of things like the internet and here you and I are having this wonderful, friendly conversation, but we've never met or had, you know, never heard of each other until a few weeks ago, um, which is, which is fantastic. And then uh, getting to go to things like uh, celebration in Chicago a few years ago was, uh, was a ton of fun. Um, but it just establishes that, uh, you know, that immediate commonality. And I, as a kid, even through high school, um, there was there was a point I remember pretty clearly when you you didn't really tell everybody you were a huge Star Wars fan, and that seems hard to grasp now. But uh, you know, 
if you said, you know, I'm Hal and I love Star Wars, it's like, well, you're a nerd. Give me your lunch money. And it, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't just broadly accepted to just be uh, a fan of something. And that's something when I look around now over the last, I know, what would you say, 10 years or so, um, there's been such a renaissance in sort of what fandom is. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's, I never really cared that much one way or another, whether it was okay to be a Star Wars fan. I mean, I always was and always collected stuff, but it's wonderful now to just see that people look at fandom and say, hey, you're into this, I'm into this. Cool. That's a foundation for, you know, for a friendship of some kind. And uh, that's something that uh, I, I guess has been kind of an anchor point for me all along. Um, the, you know, the nostalgia always plays through uh, very strongly. Um, you know, I, I lived through that first dark era when it wasn't as okay to be a nerd or a geek as it is now. And then there was the, the, uh, the pre prequel period in the early nineties when, um, all we had were, we had some expanded universe novels and the star Wars bendums. And otherwise there was just no such thing as star Wars merchandise. So this is another thing to hard. It's hard to remember. So you feel like, okay, we've, you know, we've lived through the bleak periods and now it's, uh, um, you know, even with the the saga having ended, uh, it's still just a, a vibrant and wonderful thing, and everybody can just relax and say, "Oh, you love it too? Okay, cool." You know, and then you find out pretty much everybody does. <laughs> uh, so true. Uh, so before we wrap things up, I, I wanted to ask you about the Rocketeer Minute podcast. That's a movie I very clearly remember seeing in the theater as a young kid, and it's one of those movies that had kind of gone off my radar for a long time, and I'd revisited it a few years ago and remembered how fun it was. So how did the Rocketeer Minute come about? So I'm, I'm really glad you asked that, uh, Stephen. I appreciate that. The um, um, I mean, I've been a Rocketeer fan since, uh, I don't want to sound like a hipster, but since uh, at least a little bit before the movie came out, I had I had discovered the comics and then uh, uh, the first sort of trade paperback I've been an aviation fan, you know, my whole life I've been immersed in aviation, uh, and in particular, you know, uh, classic and antique airplanes have always been a passion of mine. Um, and it, it kind of bleeds through into star Wars. That's why, you know, my, my favorite figures are X wing Luke and, you know, imagining flying those things and stuff has always spoken to me. But, uh, anyway, uh, at this, you know, deep love of the Rocketeer. And then, um, you know, some years ago, uh, the whole movies by minute, uh, podcast genre came about, uh, uh, when a couple guys came out and did, uh, did the star Wars minute, you know, in every episode of the podcast and people hear that and think, wow, how do you do a whole podcast in just one minute? I says, well, right. <laughs> it's the other way around. It's you take a minute of the movie and then you spend 20, 40, 60 minutes talking about just that minute. So the Star Wars minute uh, kind of took off and then Indiana Jones minute came along after that. And then kind of before you know it, there was a whole subgenre of movies by minute. There's sort of a loose and very, very friendly and, and uh, cooperative community around that. And my buddy, uh, my buddy now, uh, Jim O'Kane had been doing one called the airport minute. And he, uh, when that was going to finish, uh, he wanted to do the, the Rocketeer. It was, uh, that was the next movie he was going to do because he had so much fun, uh, working through the movie airport minute by minute. And he and I didn't know each other and had no, no contact. He reached out though, to a guy named Brian fees. Who's a, uh, Eisner award-winning graphic novelist that I started out as a fan. And now I'm proud to say I'm a, a friend of his. I kind of stalked him enough and beat him down that now we're friends. Um, he did a fantastic, very space and retro futuristic oriented graphic novel called whatever happened to the world of tomorrow. That's one of my, it's one of my all time favorite books in any format. And so Jim reached out to Brian, the, the graphic novelist and said, Hey, why don't you come on and be my co-host on the Rocketeer minute? And Brian said, I'd love to, but there's a better guy. There's uh, there's a guy who loves the Rocketeer. You know, he's, he's got a helmet. Uh, he's into old airplanes. He knows all the aviation stuff in and out. And his name's Hal and you guys should meet up. So we got introduced on Facebook and then Jim was finishing the, the airport minute. So he had me on as a guest there and we had a good time talking airplane stuff and figured, figured it would work. So he asked if I would co-host the Rocketeer minute with him. And I said, gosh, I don't know if I have enough time or whatever else, but it sounds like a blast. So, so let's, uh, let's give it a go. So we launched that in April of, uh, 2017. And started, uh, you know, you start with the first 60 seconds. And so we'd, we'd planned 109 episodes and, 
the day we launched, we, uh, you know, had a, a Twitter account with, you know, all of two followers or something, but we tweeted it out there and we tagged Billy Campbell, the lead actor who plays Cliff Secord, you know, AKA the Rocketeer tagged him in it just for the heck of it. And then I got this phone call at like just before five the next morning. And it's my friend Jim saying, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. Have you looked at Twitter? Have you looked at Twitter? And that, you know, before most of the world had even woken up and found our first episode, who, you know, whoever would have found it, the star of the movie had found our, saw our tweet, started listening to the episode and then tweeted at us, you know, I'm listening right now while eating my oatmeal. This is good stuff. How can I help? And we just, we all, we freaked out. We lost our minds. And so we reached out to, to Billy and he ended up coming on about a quarter of our episodes. He became a recurring guest, an honorary sort of bonus host. And once he said, you know, once he got involved and three of us just clicked and just had so much fun, just going deep and talking about this movie and what it was like to make it and all these sorts of things. Once we could say that he had been on, um, then it was, it was a lot easier that paved the way for a lot of other, for other cast and crew. It took us multiple attempts. Uh, and in fact, the podcast we'd have, we'd hit our 109 episodes, but we're periodically doing a follow up here or there, but we did end up doing, uh, three episodes with Joe Johnston who directed the Rocketeer and also, you know, by the way, invented Boba Fett <laughs> and, you know, did the early drawings for the X-Wings and, and uh, largely credited with some of that original design for the Millennium Falcon and stuff. And, you know, talk about uh, Starstruck, but. We just had, uh, we had a great time. And in between people involved with the movie, we had, uh, we had historians, uh, the, uh, director of the Griffith park observatory came on and did a couple of episodes with us to talk about what it was like when the rocketeer was shooting there. Um, the statue of Charles Lindbergh plays a big part in the film. So my, my friend, Eric, who is Charles grandson came on and we talked about Charles Lindbergh's legacy. And that I think is what made it so much fun was that we could, you know, you were not just clicking frame by frame, by frame through uh, the film, but the film, whatever might've been on screen could become a jumping off point to, uh, to talk about all manner of interesting topics. And like I said, once we got a little bit of momentum behind us, you know, people would just reach out to us and says, Hey, I, you know, I was an extra in that movie. You know, they love your podcast. Well, come on and tell us about it. Uh, we made friends with uh, a uh, Amy Young, who was a pyrotechnician at, at uh, ILM, and she's the one who blew up the Zeppelin. And you know, she came on for multiple episodes, and it's just an absolute sweetheart. Uh, Laura Harden, who's best known as Jan from The Office, um, is the singer in the South Seas Club, and she came on and was thrilled to to rem reminisce about that movie because nobody ever asked her about it. So, anyway. It was a ton of fun and getting to talk to Joe Johnston was, uh, was a highlight. Um, was up there with not to name drop, but I'm going to name drop because why not? Um, in, as part of my job, somehow magically, uh, you would never think that as part of my job as an editor in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, of all places that I would be interacting with both Harrison Ford and George Lucas. But, uh, we had a big fundraising, uh, fundraising event we do every year we we host an air show here that is the uh every summer that is the biggest aviation event of any kind in the world and harrison ford is a very avid member of our our organization and a strong supporter so he's usually here in the summer but uh we were previewing uh doing a premiere screening of red tails so both george lucas and harrison ford were were there for this fundraising event and that was the year that i was tapped to be the master of ceremonies so you know, got to be on stage with both those guys and chat with them uh, on and off. And then a few years later, uh, Harrison Ford and I were introduced to screening of The Force Awakens together. And uh, it was just an absolute, an absolute blast and something that, boy, if you could reach back to that nine-year-old back in 1977 and tell him that, that was going to happen, I, I never would have believed it. Thank you so much, Hal, for coming on the podcast and sharing all your memories. It was great to hear from you. Oh, Stephen, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate your asking.
Thanks again to Hal for sharing his memories, and if you're a fan of The Rocketeer, his podcast is a must-listen. To learn more about The Rocketeer Minute, Seattle's UA-150, and all the rest, check out the image gallery and show notes at the website, starwarsatthemovies.com. You can keep up to date with everything else on the project's Facebook page and group, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, reach out via email to starwarsatthemovies at gmail.com. That about wraps up Season 4. Thanks so much for listening, and until next year, hang in there, and remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.